It's time for Breaking Bread with Papa. Hey! Don't you know? Hey! It's our go. Hey! It's time for Breaking Bread with Papa. Hey! Don't you know? Hey! It's also a show. Hey! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Breaking Bread with Tom Papa. I am Tom Papa, and I'm joined today by... And I, I'm, I'm starting to get this now, so you must be really sick of it. Uh, the legendary Tom Dreesen, right? <laughs> Once they say legendary, you're now like, all right, I'm not young anymore. Uh, <laughs> very excited. Uh, I actually ran into Tom while I was uh, food shopping, which I'm doing all the time. I actually baked you some bread. Mm. Uh, it's You can feel underneath it's still probably a little warm. Oh, yeah. 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 I'll take that with me. And uh, I was there getting my wares and because I cook all the time, and that's where this whole podcast came from. And I ran into the great Tom Dreesen. And uh, when I first started coming to L.A., I started off going to the Laugh Factory and the improv and stuff. And you were on the shows all the time. And I was like, who is this guy that is a little older than the other guys, but killing more than the younger guys, working clean, but crushing? And I was just like totally uh, drawn to you as soon as I got here and it gave me great comfort to uh, become friends with you and talk with you backstage and stuff and we're very lucky to have him uh, I saw him when I was shopping for the food and I'm like these are stories that we need on the podcast because your career spans over 50 years opening for Sinatra more I think tonight shows than anybody I think ever um, how many tonight shows did you end up 61, doing? 61 but holy shit balls yeah. <laughs> There were guys who, David Brenner did more than me, and so did, uh, uh, I think, uh, Joan Rivers, Rodney, maybe. But right. There might, have, there might have been, I might be four or, five, four or five. And that was, were they all stand-up? Were they all yeah. standing yeah. and... Oh, yeah, always stand-up. Always stand-up. Yeah, David, I did over 50 David Letterman shows, but he never wanted me to do stand-up. He wanted me to sit down and tell stories. Did you want to do stand-up? Yeah, I would like to have done, you know, because yeah. I, that, that, that's, uh, that's what we do. I, was, I would I know. be marketing what I do. Right. But, uh, but it, David, I mean, it, it, being on his show helped me sell out shows sometimes. Right. I'm doing a, I do a one-man show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's a 90-minute show. And so David helped with that. I want to digress for a moment. You know yep. how you become a legend? Thank you for that. That's a compliment in a lot of ways. Whenever they introduce me as a legend at the Laugh Factory or the comedy yeah. show when I'm working <laughs> on new material, I say, you know how you become a legend? All my critics are dead. <laughs> I outlived them all. Right, exactly. So you, I'm still going. Legend. I mean, really, that is kind of a thing. I mean, not critics, but how many guys that you started with are rolling in to clubs on Sunset to work out new material. Yeah. Well, you know, I got, Tommy, uh, this is the truth. Many years ago, I was working um, Tahoe. I was working at Tahoe with, um, at, with Sammy Davis at, at um, Harris. Uh -huh. And George Burns was working next door at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And I had done the Dean Martin roast with George Burns, and I knew him, and I liked him. I thought the world of him. Yeah. Now, I ran over to catch his show. This guy, after my show, this guy... Uh, was 95 years old he didn't run out to the microphone but when he got out there he did a strong hour and 10 minutes and just killed God. the audience and 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 uh, i went backstage afterward to say hello to him yeah. and he was looking at three by five cards he was in his dressing room looking at three by five cards i walked in he said oh hi tommy he said i was working on some new material tonight i said that's what i want to do i want to be 95 years yeah. old working on new material god <laughs> that is so great 
Whenever people say, when are you going to lay it down? When are you going to quit? I always tell that story. Yeah. 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 Do you ever, I mean, there's no quitting, right? If you, if if you've still, if you love it and I love it, and I know you do too. I love making people laugh. It's not a, it's that, what's that old uh, cliche that if you love your work, you never, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. It's the truth. Yeah. I know. uh, When I keep getting all of these uh, pop-up things of like retirement, you know, online and stuff, and it's like, I had to retire. It's like. I'm, and I have friends, you know, that I went to high school with that are planning it now, and some yeah. have, some have bailed, but they didn't love what they did. Think think about it's the greatest profession on the planet. Not because you and I are stand up comedians and I'm blowing smoke. It truly is. Now, before I was ever a comedian, yeah, I spent four years in the military. I came out. I was married. I had a wife and three kids. I work concrete. I wheel concrete. I work construction. I help pour sidewalks, basements. You know, oh, yeah. concrete. I worked um, uh, for carpenters. I was a laborer all the time. Was this the, Chicago? Chicago. Yeah, on the south side, a suburb called Harvey, Illinois. I um, I uh, worked on a loading dock, loading trucks and I became a teamster and later dropped my card and became management you know uh, I, I was a bartender I was a, a, a truck driver I helped my brother in photography I was a private detective wow. uh, for a while I <laughs> had all these jobs and was never fulfilled always was very yeah. unfulfilled being a stand-up comedian think about first of all the, the, the insurance companies of America did a survey many years ago of the 10 fears of man mm. they did it for eight years around, research around the country the ten fears of man. Death was fourth. Pain was second. Second, getting up in front of an audience was a number one fear of mankind. God. That we can get up in front of an audience and make people laugh. If you can get yeah. up in front of an audience and talk about being a house painter for an hour, right. or a lawyer, or a bartender, or whatever, you're in less than one percent of the population of the world. That's if so you can strange. get up and make people laugh for an hour, yeah, forget you're it. in less than one millionth of one percent of the population of the world. God. So how fortunate we are to be able to do this. But the other thing, too, is... Laughter is healing. We, mm-hmm. It always was a theory before. Yeah. And hold your point because I'm going to wrap yeah. up. It. But la- it, laughter was, it was always a, a theory. Uh, 10,000 years ago, Indian tribes had a, their medicine man made you laugh. He was like a clown. Mm-hmm. So even then they knew that laughter. Laughter is psychologically a deterrent that if you're watching a comedian, you're not thinking of your problems. The brain cannot think of two thoughts at the same time. Right. It can't function two thoughts at the same time. Uh-huh. So if you're watching a comedian or listening to a comedy album, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're not thinking of your problems. So laughter is psychologically a deterrent. But because of Norman Cousins, the man who wrote two books, Laughter Math, and the other was The Anatomy of an Illness. Mm -hmm. He was told he was going to die. Doctors told him he didn't have long to live, a heart ailment, in the hospital he's landed because of the stress in his life. He laid in the hospital and he thought of negative input, stress made me ill, then positive input should make me well. Mm -hmm. So he checked out of the hospital. He'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candy Camera, Three Stooges, and Marx Brothers. (laughs) Wouldn't watch the evening news, wouldn't read the papers. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Wow. So now, because of that, UCLA did research. When the body laughs, a hearty laugh, endorphins are released in the, in, from the brain into the bloodstream. Right. So after a hearty laugh, you go, oh, and that sense of well-being comes over because <laughs> yeah. your body's going through an actual chemical change. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. Right. So comedians are physicians of the soul. So Dr. Papa... <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing like when people come up to you after shows they are grateful i mean sure. grateful and you realize they don't laugh I, I mean even close to what you just did for an hour and a half mm-hmm. but in their everyday life they the amount of times that some people laugh is so small yeah it really is incredible 
and it's part of your health. And, and how many times in your career have people come up to you and said, I got to tell you, um, you made me laugh. I was going through a problem, you know, a divorce, a, a yeah. death in the family. I've, I've been un, in the doldrums. I, I didn't want to come here tonight. My friend drugged me here. But, man, I, you made me feel so much better. That's yeah. happened to all of us so many times. At first, you you know, you don't you know, absorb it. Right. But as time goes by, you start looking into it. It's the greatest profession on the planet. Yeah. For those of us who can do it. I'm, you know, yeah. Um, I mean, those odds are so crazy. I never yeah. thought of that. Less than 1%. We'll even get up there to do anything. Yeah. And then <laughs> even smaller just to get up there and make people laugh. I have to say, when you said uh, private detective, I could I could see you in Chicago. Mm. You could have you could have rocked that for a long time. Yeah, it was an interesting. <laughs> uh, it was for a police detective agency, and uh, he hired street kids. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. You know? uh, I grew up on the streets. I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner. Right. I had eight brothers and sisters. Whoa. We lived in a shack, and we were raggedy poor. You know, wow. holes in my shoes. You put cardboard in there. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. You know. Were both so, your folks around? Yeah, both of them were, and both of them had drinking problem at one time mm-hmm. and um and then f- my dad died drinking you know and and uh, my mom uh, finally quit drinking you know right but you know if, 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 when you're a kid you learn to love the human being but hate the illness you know yeah and and uh but we didn't i didn't think of them as alcoholic because where i'm from you know people just did that there yeah in harvey illinois a suburb on the south side of chicago as you mentioned there were like 36 uh taverns mm. there was maybe Jeez. 15 factories steel mills factories he made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts yeah people worked in a factory w- went home got a shot in a beer on the way home or yeah. on weekends the corner tavern was a social center right you know everybody hung around the corner tavern and keeping and, people uh, sane yeah and fridays they had fish fries you know for the catholics you know right and and so you, you i grew up around saloons taverns yeah. frank sinatra god rest his soul a, a new york times guy once said to him why do you why do you have Dreesen open for you all the time? Mm-hmm. And we were sitting in a place called Patsy's on West 57th oh, Street. I love that place. In New York, yeah. Oh, God. Just, the, because, just because you guys ate there. Yeah. <laughs> really. But, but you know, the, the, the guy said to Frank, he was walking out and he was joking, but he said, Frank, how come you keep this guy Dreesen around? He said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, yeah. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, he said, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean, we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. Right. And I, I never yeah. forgot that quote. Because that's what I truly am. I'm a guy from the neighborhood. I, I, I you know, yeah. I attended bar in the neighborhood when I came out of the service where my mom used to attend bar, you know. Did you feel that with him when you were, I mean, I'll, I'll go back and, well, you know what, let's do that. Let's go back because I know some of the listeners won't know the story. Uh you mentioned in the beginning that you had already been doing stand-up for how many years before you run into Sinatra? Oh, I, I, I had been doing it for, God, well, I was with a comedy team six years. Tim Reed and I were America's first black-and-white comedy team. Right. History shows were the last. They, they may now be doing a mini-series about Tim and Tom. Oh, really? There were no comedy clubs in those days. Right. So we, we worked so all crazy. black clubs in the north and the south, what they called the Chitlin Circuit. Yeah. Black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. And we worked all white nightclubs, too. We worked the Playboy Circuit and stuff. But but we paid dues that no other act ever really had to pay. It was, it's an yeah. interesting story. But So six years of that, and then when the team broke up, I, I was doing it. Um, I, in 1975, I did my first appearance on The Tonight Show, and then I started touring with Sammy Davis. So I met Frank after I'd been in the business about... 12 years. 12, 12 years, including years. the duo? 
including the duo, including yeah. the duo, including the duo. Yeah, I'm As sorry. You, I'm gonna I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna do this a lot because mm -hmm. you're you're. I know this is uh, all all common for you, and but you drop things, and I'm like, wait, I have. I'm gonna have so many questions. I'm gonna be doubling back a lot. I know that's the way this that's is gonna fine, go. Uh, there are no comedy clubs. Mm -hmm. uh, you meet up with what's his name? Tim, Tim Reed. Tim Reed. You meet up with Tim. How? I mean, now it's like people grow up seeing comedy on YouTube and yeah. all this stuff, and it seems like a kind of a sensible business path, career path. Yeah. How do you guys come? There's there's no duos. There's no comedy clubs. There's no biracial teams. I'll tell you, How do you? Where's the first thought come? It's it's like a gift from God, and I'm not making that up. I I, I was wandering aimlessly from job to job. I had a wife and three kids. I never, I would do a job good, but then I, I just something, I'd be in a bar with my buddies at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know, I'd say, I don't belong in here, but I didn't know where I belong. Yeah. And I honestly started praying. I said, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? Because I was so frustrated. Yeah. I joined a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce in those days, teaching you leadership training program, how to form committees, subcommittees, how to, Robert's Rules of Order, you know, mm -hmm. how to conduct meetings. They worked on the problems of the community. Right. And, and by helping solve the problems of the community, you had a lot of leadership training programs. Mm -hmm. So, I one of the biggest problems in those days were, were drugs in our ch in our youth. Uh -huh. So I wrote a drug education program teaching eighth graders, elementary school kids, the ills of drug abuse with humor. Wow! A concept I had of making the kids laugh, play some records, and everything. Right. You know, I was never a comedian. Never thought I'd ever be a comedian. But yeah. I was a, a guy who could tell a joke. I was a yeah. ship when I was in the service and stuff like that. Uh -huh. I was always the guy in the neighborhood. When I was a bartender, people would come in. I'd tell them a joke. Hey, Tom Papa was in here the other night, and I'd tell a neighborhood joke. And, <laughs> yeah, right. You know. So you were getting laughs. I was, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. You know? But I never, never thought I'd ever be in showbiz. So. On this drug education program, I proposed it to the JCs one night at a, at one of the meetings. I wanted them to sanction it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I had a guy, a white guy, a white friend of mine named John DeBoer that was going to work with me on that program. Okay. When I finished proposing it, this young black guy comes up to me with his sponsor. He said, I'm a new JC. This is my first meeting. My name is Tim Reed. Mm -hmm. He said, and I'd like to work with you on that not a project. I said, gee, I already got a guy, but thank you. Uh -huh. Again, divine intervention. The next day, my buddy John DeBoer calls me and said, Tom, I can't do the program with you. I got a new job. Uh -huh. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Tim Reed. I meet with Tim. We rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. We go into the schools, and the moment I walked in that classroom, I went, whoa, what a blessing. I never even thought about it. The children right. were black and white. The children were integrated. Uh -huh. So, so you know, two white guys, it maybe got over, but we got their attention immediately. Yeah, how and, great that you didn't premeditate it. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and, and now we're, we're, we're getting the kids laughing, playing records yeah. and everything. The program became very successful. The JCs, through their publications, made it a model program through 50 states and 22 foreign countries wherever JCs were. Man. One day, a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. <laughs> a couple days later, Tim and I were sitting at a bar. We're talking and, and, uh, about yeah. what we're going to do. He told me a joke. I told him a joke. Funny. He said, you, gonna, you remember what that girl said? Would you do that? I said, huh? I, I, would you do that? <laughs> we didn't know the first thing to do. Yeah, where so to go? We where are you going to go? Writing, well, we start writing what we thought was funny, driving his wife crazy. Uh -huh. 
my ex-wife, what was her name again? Oh, yeah, plaintiff. And, you know, <laughs> she hated the, the idea of a comedy team. And I don't blame her. Right. I really don't blame her. Of me going in the show business. You know. She had a dad who worked 38 years in a factory, never missed a day, brought a check home every Friday. Right. So she was raised in, in, in the blue collar like I was. Sure. That Anyhow, regular routine, yeah. the regular life. Bills paid. You know, yep. I, I go into this business where we didn't have food coming. <laughs> we had a, we had two, I had a wife and three kids. Tim had a wife and two kids. Wow. And there were How no, old are you at this point? At that time, I was uh, in my twenties, twenty-seven or something. Like right that. now, <laughs> now we, we there's no there's no comedy clubs. Yeah. So we kept driving his wife crazy. You know, do you think this is funny, Rita? You think that's funny? Uh -huh. Funny shit. Go do this somewhere. <laughs> so we went to a jazz club where they have a jazz trio. Yeah. And we asked them when the group takes a break, could we get up? Yeah. And the owner of the club said, yeah, you know, he's a nice guy. So Tim and I got up, and we were so bad because we <laughs> all we did was we memorized our material. Oh, uh, just so, spitting it out? Oh, no, all we just going like a machine gun. Hi, we're to come to him and Tim Tom. He's Tim, I'm Tom. And he, what do you, <laughs> pretty soon, some guy in the back hollered, slow down. I said, oh, sir, please don't heckle us. This is our first time. <laughs> <laughs> we come off stage, we get the owner in the corner. How do we do? How do we do? What do you think? What do you think? He said, I don't know. You never gave me a chance to laugh. Come back tomorrow and slow down. Oh, nice. Next day we go back. One of the lines I had written got a big laugh right from the start. Nice. At that moment, it was like a B movie. Like one of those B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. My whole being went... Oh, yeah. Right. This is what I want to do. This is... Tommy, I couldn't sleep that whole night. It was a Friday night. Yeah. I couldn't sleep that whole night. I'm tossing, trying to get up in the morning. I go down to the church where I had been an altar boy, where my mom sang in a choir, where I sang in a choir when I was right. a boy. I got on my knees. I prayed. I said, oh, God. I, the church was empty. There was no service there or anything. Yeah. I said, God, I know now. I know now. I want to be a comedian. Wow, the thought man. that you might make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. Yeah, I said, and I'm, I'm planning to say, God, I'll, I'll do charities. I'm making promises. In, right. <laughs> that was September 1969. In September 2019, 50 years later, yeah. I went back to that church, Ascension Church in Harvey, Illinois, and I gave a sermon on the power of prayer. Whoa! Because I told you, I said, I know right there, everything I prayed for happened. Jeez. I've been making my living as a comedian for 52 years, flying in Frank Sinatra's jet all over the world, <laughs> doing the Tonight Show. Was, yeah. yeah. I, I, again, it was amazing. Yeah. Do you still pray? Oh, every night. Yeah. Every night. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, it sounds like I'm some kind of saint. I'm not, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm a sinner like the best of them. But, yeah. but I, I, when I was given the sermon, I said to the audience, the congregation, I said, how many of you out there were thinking of a friend you hadn't seen for a long time or a relative and the phone rings, you go, Hello, and it's that person. Mm -hmm. And you go, I was just thinking of you. And they say, you know, I was just thinking of you too. Mm -hmm. I, I, and how many times you haven't seen someone in years and you're walking down the street and you bump into them. I was just thinking, they say, you know, I was thinking of you too. Yep. Raise your hand. And the whole congregation raised their hand. Sure. I said, if we human beings can transfer thought, and obviously we can, yeah. then how powerful is a supreme being to transfer thought, right. and that's, it's it's not rocket science to me. It just makes sense. Yeah, you know? it just com it's completely. So you start doing these jazz clubs in Chicago, the Did, Chitlin Circuit, the Black Chitlin Black. Circuit. So you just kept. So that's pretty interesting. There are probably no white performers in the None. Chitlin Circuit. Uh -uh. So he's that's kind of an opposite showbiz story, right? It was always the the. Uh, the black performer trying to break into the white clubs. Yeah. Now you're on that circuit. That had to have been a, it must've been a tough, I mean, you have to have gone through a lot together. What 
decided when did you decide and why did you decide i'm gonna go out on my own i didn't he did he I, did I, it broke my heart i i really? I, I thought tim and tom could be the greatest or at least it was my dream and my prayers were yeah. the greatest comedy team of all time because there was never been a black and white comedy team yeah. before or after you know 69 so, so you were 69 to 75 it's this, a pretty heavy time for race think about it yeah martin luther king was assassinated bobby kennedy was assassinated yeah African-Americans were riding in every major city in America, including Harvey, Illinois, at one of the largest riots right in my neighborhood. I grew up in a, in a predominantly black neighborhood. We were raggedy poor, like I said. So I, yeah. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on an all-black football team. So I had a lot of experiences. Yeah. Years later, I have an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. Because <laughs> Richard Pryor wanted me to call it That Honky's Crazy. Because, right. you know, he had that N-word yeah. crazy. I said... I would do that, Richard, but no black guy ever called me honky in my whole life. They always call me white boy. Right. When I played, they'd say, hey, white boy, come here, you know. White boy's on, you know. <laughs> if I went home right now and they were arguing about a game we played, yeah. and the guy's saying, I scored two touchdowns, a white boy was there, white boy, come here, tell him, you know. Right, right. So it was always an affectionate term. Yeah, yeah. So, we, again, we work in the Chicago, there's the, the high chaparral, the, the chitlin circuit, the cotton club. The Burning Spear, Guys and Gals Lounge. Right. In, in uh, Boston, the Sugar Shack. In, in uh, Detroit, that was when Motown was in Detroit. They had a place called the 20 Grand where a gangster owned that. Right. Uh, named uh, K. Bush, BK was his name. <laughs> yeah. and, and all the Motown acts broke in their shows at the 20 Grand before they went on to Las Vegas. You know? Wow. Uh, the, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. You'll love this. This was before they had gambling. On Kentucky Avenue, the Club Harlem. Right. <clears throat> Most nightclubs in those days, you opened on a Monday closed on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. At the Club Harlem, you opened Saturday night, closed on the following Friday. But your first show Saturday night was 10 o'clock at night. Your second show was 2 o'clock in the morning. Your third show was 6 a.m. They called 6 a.m.? 6 a.m. They called it the breakfast show. And all the waiters and the waitresses and the bartenders, all the night people came to that show, and all the pimps brought their hoes from Newark, from Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Oh they God. came down in, in, in Cadillacs and in Rolls Royces, and, and they had their, what they called their barn. Yeah. The hoes were their barn. And they'd, they'd, they'd pay as much as three, four, five hundred noise days to sit down front. You know, and they'd like to come in late so they could come in with the ladies behind them, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. The show would open with Mama Lou Parks and her dancers, a heavy set black woman with all these young kids dancing, getting yeah. show rocking. <laughs> and it would be a, a male group, Sons of Robin Stone. It'd be a female group, uh, the Quiet Elegance. Then comedy. Yeah. And then the headliner would either be Smokey Robinson, uh, Natalie Cole, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, the Dells, um, you know, whatever. Isn't it crazy that at the time, there's there's no comedy clubs right it's like you have all, that era of live performing in all those kind of acts that you're mentioning mm -hmm. like 50 years later the only ones that are real really still touring and there's a audience for our comedians well no smoky like, smoky robinson's well i mean the but i mean big at big music yeah. acts but like, like yeah. at that level like yeah there's no going out to see that variety of no. stuff it's yeah. just now it's See, that's where that's Comedy. where Wilson Pryor, that's where uh, yeah. Miles Mabley, that's where, uh, you know, everybody. It was a special uh, time. Oh, it was, and I'd be the only white guy. And, yeah. and, and the, the MC, yeah. opening night, the MC would say, ladies and gentlemen, we got a comedy team here. And um, the comedy team, first of all, he'd say, y'all ready for some comedy? You ready for, yeah. He said, and, and uh, we got a comedy team. Somebody said, they funny. Said, Man, I don't know if they're funny or not. I ain't seen him either. <laughs> he'd be talking to the other. But. He'd say, we got a comedy team here. Uh -huh. And this team, he kept saying team. Yeah. This team came from Chicago. And this 
the first time this team has ever been here. Please uh-huh. welcome the comedy team of Tim and Tom, and Tim would go out by himself. <laughs> he said, we're really happy to be here. Yeah, we just came in the other day, and uh, we've never been in, and pretty soon people saying, we, we, I don't see, we, I see, he, and I would slowly come out stage left, and a spotlight would hit me, and I'm going up stage left, he's center stage, uh-huh. and I'm... I'm looking in the audience, and, and you hear, uh-oh, what do we got here? Look out. You know, I, I'd get up to center stage, and I'd, I finally work my way over to him. I'd say, he'd say, man, where you been? Say, I don't see any of my people out there. He'd look, and he'd say, no, I don't think any of your people out there. I'd put my arm around him. I'd say, well, we better be funny. He'd say, what do you mean, we, white man? <laughs> Boom, the roof would come off him. <clears throat> that is amazing. Yeah. God, we so he split. Years, yeah. So why yeah. did he split? Uh, he he. We were open for Dollar Reese uh-huh. at one time, and uh, and she and him got. He, you know, we were both married. Tim and I were both married. She and him hooked up a little bit, and the next thing I know, he was out on the West Coast, uh, yeah. staying in her Bel Air hotel, uh, Bel Air home. You know, and uh, he ended up leaving his wife and. And uh, and then he told me, you know, he wanted to go on his own. Right. And, and, and you know, as as it, it turned, I broke my heart at the time. Yeah. But it turned out we're still the best of friends today. Oh yeah. Uh, I think the world amazing. I mean, everything I have, everything I own, everything I've got, because I met Tim Reed. Yeah. And he feels the same way about me. You know. Did he continue performing? Yeah. He Tim later became Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. He was on a show called oh, Sister, Sister. Oh, right, right, he, he, right. Sister, Sister, he played this. the father. He was on a show called Simon and Simon. He's probably done more sitcoms than any yeah, actor out there. Yeah, he was there. so good. Yeah, he's a director. He's a, and, 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 and he's, he's my brother. I mean, right. I, I love him to death. His children call me Uncle Tom. They, 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 ever <laughs> since they were little kids, they call me Uncle Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We were, Tim and I wrote a book called uh, Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. Yeah. And in 2005, we were touring around with the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, both had our separate careers, of course. But we went to yeah. Norfolk State College, where his he graduated. It's a historical black college. I'm at a buffet before we're going to go talk to the students, and I'm in line with seven black prof- professors. We're getting our food, and Tori, Tim's daughter, hadn't seen me in a year, and she came in the in, in the back, and she saw me, and she started hollering, "Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, <laughs> Uncle Tom!" These professors turned around, and I said. She's talking to me. <laughs> she came running up hugging me. I said, honey, you got to be careful. She said, oh, I never even thought about that. <laughs> so that must have been an adjustment when you decide that's now your dream. I'm going to be a comedian. Mm. And now your half of your being is, has been cut off. It was devastating. Yeah, God, that I mean, must it, scary. it was like a broken marriage. It was like everything that I'd put in six years into, I knew was over. Yeah. Now I'm sitting in a bar with my buddies uh, late at night, and my ex-wife wanted me out of show business. She thought this is great. He's going to finally get out of the business. Even though you, got, you found success. And yeah. Well, Tim and Tom would want a great success. We 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 did you shows. Got by. Yeah, we just got by, and, and yeah. sometimes it wasn't work for a while, and. You and know, you're not around. Yeah, and, and, and that, all that stuff. So she thought, I'm finally going to stay home and get a job in the factory. Yeah. And I, I'm sitting in the bar one night with my buddies, and it was, they were getting ready to close. They closed the bars at 2 o'clock in my neighborhood. And I had two beers in front of me, and in fact, there were shot glasses. If somebody's buying you another beer, they put a shot glass there upside down. So I had like two of them. But I'm sitting there, <laughs> what am I going to do? I was real good at alternatives in my life. I said, I'm either going to, I could I could find another black guy and do the same act. Yeah. I could get a job and make my wife happy, get a job and just give up this dream of mine. Yeah. Or I could go it alone. And I thought, I could go it alone. And I, I sat there and I said, yeah, I'm going to go it alone. 
I'm gonna go it alone. And I, I, I said, and I said, and I always set goals. Yeah. I said, and I'm gonna try to get to the Tonight Show because in those days, wherever you went in America, yeah, people say, what do you do for a living? So I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah, you ever been on Johnny Carson? Mm-hmm. And Freddie Pence, who we had worked with many years, he went on the Tonight Show, and one of parents got a sitcom the yeah. next day. You know. Huge. So I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Get on the Tonight Show. That's I said at, at the bar. And they're getting ready to. Come Where's to, this bar? Where are you? Where are you now? Harvey in my hometown. Uh-huh. Still there. Sitting there. Yeah. And I said, that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to get to the Tonight Show. But I remember a book I read by W. Clement Stone, Positive Mental Attitude. Mm-hmm. It said, if you know what you want to do in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and get it out of your life. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to make it all the way to the Tonight Show? I said, alcohol. I love drinking beer. I love uh, drinking beer. I said, and you know, you, you know, you can't have hangovers and go out on stages and write material. I mean, so I took the two beers. I said, my buddy was just, he was 10 in bar. He come walk yeah. up. He said, two for the night, Tommy. I said, I quit. He said, two for the night. I said, I quit. He said, you quit tonight. I said, no, I quit drinking. He goes, yeah, right. I'll see you here tomorrow. And I never touch another drop. You know? No. Yeah. And for years, I never, I, one night I went out after years when I was doing the Tonight Show yeah. and being successful, I went out and had a couple of beers. I said, it's just not what I want to do anymore. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Did, did, that, <laughs> did that bother Sinatra? Well, you know, once in a while I'd have a beer with him, but you know, once in a while what I do, I'd, I'd get a, I'd say, I'd tell the waiter when I say rum and coke, just put coke in there, you know? uh-huh. <laughs> and I'd have a stir in there, you know, because Frank used to say, drink, drink a real drink, you know, or something like that, because you know? we stayed out till dawn. He never went to bed till the sun came up. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that that I know that was, it almost seems like mythology, the stories of Sinatra at this point, and. Uh, I got this, my daughter gave me this great book, uh, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, and it's just all this, it's like a, all these photos, great photos of that era it's when that article story. was coming out, yeah. a great story. Yeah. But did he really not go to bed until the sun up sun, every what, night? Whether we were on the road or off the road. That was just his schedule, and then he, he'd sleep till noon? He was nocturnal. He would catnap during the day, you know, uh-huh. sleep off and on, but he, he was nocturnally, and I don't know whether he got it from the big band era. I used to think that maybe... You know, I, I always, I, my brain works overtime, but I think maybe he's afraid of the dark. Maybe he's afraid of the night. Somebody he knew maybe died in their sleep or something. Uh-huh. I don't know. But yeah. he was he was a night guy. So when you do the shows, you know, we're turning around the country. We'd, we're like Vegas. He'd hang out till like uh, three, four in the morning, five in the morning. You know, and uh, the, one, of the nights, <laughs> hardest, one of the nights I made him laugh so hard. We'd just been doing one-nighters all over the country. We flew into Las Vegas in his private jet, you know, and then you... Uh-huh. you um, uh, we opened at the Desert Inn, did two shows. Now, it's after the shows. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.15. He's got four or five guys around, and he, I could see he's going in the second gear. And I was beat. <laughs> yeah. I got up from the table, and he said, Hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bed. He said, What for? I said, I got to get up early in the morning <laughs> go to the cemetery. For? I said, I got to get up early in the morning go to the cemetery and visit those guys. He said, What guys? I said, All the guys who die trying to stay up with you every night. <laughs> And he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. He said, "Go to bed." And then, but he made me tell that story. He said, "Tell him what you told me the other night." You know? uh, oh man! So you decide I'm going alone, no more alcohol, and you just start cobbling together an act. You just yeah. start. I, I had some things about going to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. You know, I had some things sometimes when I would MC something, I could do a joke or two. When I, a couple of the Catholic charities, even though I was with Tim, I would MC, mm-hmm. And I had jokes about going to get, so I started right. putting, the, as you know how it is, you put together one joke, yep. and you put together two jokes, then three jokes, and before you know it, you got five minutes, you know. So when do you get on The Tonight Show? 19, December 1975, you know. 75? Yeah. 
And you said you broke... Well, we broke, we broke with Tim about early 74. We had one more gig to do. So I, I, I broke with Tim like early 74. So I'd, I'd been less Jeez, than a year. That's quick. Well, yeah. I got to tell you, but then I come out here. My, my wife, I told her, I'm just going to L.A. for a week. I figured I'll come out here, get on at the comedy store. I figured it was going to be a snap. Yeah. You know, little did I know. And, and uh, there were no other clubs out here. There was no improvisation in those days. Right. There was no other uh, Laugh Factory, just the comedy store. Right. And it was the hottest place in town, man. Every night somebody was getting discovered there. You wow. Know? These were the shows that were look, talent coordinators. Yeah. Johnny Carson, Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, uh, Dinah Shore, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. They were all looking They're for... All... And Canada had TV shows up there. They were sending their talent coordinators down there to... To sit, bring comedians up there. God. I get here. I, I never, I didn't have any more money left. I didn't have a place to stay. A girl that I had gotten a job singing one time said, I'm going on the road. You can house it. I, I thought, in my neighborhood, house sitting was you were going to burglarize the place if you're sitting on a house. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't know what house sitting was. But, yeah. <laughs> but I stayed there for three weeks while she was on the road. She came back. She said, My boyfriend's very jealous. You can't stay here. And in those three weeks, I was going to the comedy store and I hitchhiking mm-hmm. and have a car right. begging to work for free every night and I couldn't get on and finally one night Mitzi you know, was going to see me mm-hmm. and she sat in the back and when I got done I did my five minutes for her right. and she, I came off and she said well you've got stage presence and I see that you've you know, I, everybody when they do Mitzi they go well you know they always have to <laughs> yeah. do her voice <laughs> yeah. there's two people in comedy whoever they are whoever you talk about them you do their voice Jay Leno and Mitzi <laughs> right. they bo- and they both have the same kind of voice <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. You know I mean? hey Tommy how you doing yeah they're pretty close <laughs> <laughs> hey big guy Jay never calls me Tommy he goes hey big guy <laughs> but anyhow so uh, she likes you right she, away she, and she said you know we'll find a spot for you and then I said you know I MC sometimes and I'd gladly do that because knowing if you MC you're still getting stage time yeah. she said that's an idea she was always looking for mm-hmm. so I started working my way into to the system. Meantime, yeah. my wife writes me a Dear John. No. She, yeah, she writes to the, I, she knew the house I was staying at. She said, this is your dream, not mine, and blah, blah, blah. Oof. You know? I get thrown out of the house-sitting thing. I end up sleeping in an old car. There was a Nash Rambler in the back up, that was up on blocks. It was The front seat came down. Uh-huh. You know, that's another story. I, I, <laughs> I argue with, with my friend's boyfriend, you know, m- m- Pat, the girl, uh, was yeah. a great girl, but her boyfriend was insanely jealous, and he thought okay. we were having an affair when we were not. You know? uh-huh. But anyhow, so but <laughs> I, I finally get on at the comedy store, work my way into the system. Uh, finally, now I'm doing real well now. They booked me in Canada on that TV show, the Tommy Banks show. Uh, then the, the, they were going to fly me back to L.A. I said, fly me into Chicago. I opened for Fats Domino at Mr. Kelly's. I worked my way into there. I had worked there with Tim many years. Right. You know? And I convinced my wife and kids to come back with me. Not my kids. My kids wanted to go with Dad. You know? Yeah. But um, my, I convinced her to come back. And so she came back. And, she did. And we ended up having a home, the pool, the dog, the car. The, you know, was, at one time, we never had a car. Now we had several right. cars. And, and did you move them out here? Yeah, out here at Sherman Oaks. Right. And then finally, after uh, all the kids were grown, we were married about 26 years. She wanted a divorce, and I did too. You know, it was, it was the, time, yeah. Yeah, 26 years. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So you got together this. I mean, that's a quick run before you're on The Tonight Show yeah. from when I, you're sitting I, in I mean, that I bar worked. and saying, yeah. this is my goal. I'm going to go make this happen. But I worked on it, Tommy. I worked on material. I was constant, in constant state of writing new material. Yeah. You know. And, and what was that first first time like? The time show? Tonight yeah. show? 
I, I've been bugging Craig Tennis, the talent coordinator of the Tonight Show, to come and see me. I've yeah. been doing all kinds of tricks to get him to come and see me. But, yeah, <laughs> I finally got him to come and see me. He was looking at three acts that night. Mm-hmm. Baum and Eston was uh, Bruce Baum, who later became Bruce Baby yeah. Baum. He, and, uh, he had a comedy team, uh, Larry Eston, who later wrote for Cheers. So Baum, he was looking at Baum and Eston, me, and a new kid named Billy Crystal. You know. So <laughs> I don't know what ever happened to Billy. I wonder what he's doing now. Heard him. But you know, here's the thing. It's a Tuesday night, and I pull up in front. I'm, I'm real concerned that, you know, that a Tuesday night, I hope to have more than 10 or 12 people because, you yeah. know, as a comedian, the more people, the more we're going to score. Sure. The chance, better chance to score. I pull up in front, and look who's out in front. is about 110 people packed out in front. I said, oh, wow. What I didn't realize, Billy Crystal was with Rollins and Jaffe, uh-huh. a management firm. They brought all these people. There was Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, oh my some God. of the biggest names, every coordinator from every show, <clears throat> talent coordinators, <laughs> casting people. I'm thinking, wow, man. They kept them outside, wouldn't let them come in. Till B- Billy was going on. Oh no! But it's a smart move. If I was a manager, I'm not going to bring all those people in for Tom Dreesen. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, I don't. We don't handle Tom Dreesen. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> so they kept him outside, <laughs> and I had to go on in front of twelve people. <laughs> but I scored. I, I I did a good set. And when yeah. I came off, Craig Tennis said, "I like what you did. Come to my office tomorrow morning, and we'll talk." I get there the next morning. He said, "Okay, you did twenty minutes. Show me the five that you would do." Uh huh. I stood in front of him and said, I'll do this. He said, don't do that one. Take that. I'll put another. And pretty soon he said, okay. He said, you're on next Tuesday. What? A week later. He said, you'll be on next. Now, I tell the world. I'm, <laughs> I'm on the Tonight Show. I get there and make up. Take me up to my dressing room. Bring me down to the green room. Man, it's getting right. They come in. They said, we ran out of time. You'll have to come back next week. They did that three weeks in a row. They bumped me each uh. week. Come back. I get there the fourth week. I'm in makeup. Fred de Cordova comes in. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> now, you, now you get a lump in your throat about the size of this wine bottle, right? Right. <laughs> they, Carol Burnett's on the show that night. You know, they, they come and get me. Bert Convy's singing a song. They come and get me. And he puts me behind that curtain. <laughs> and Craig Tennant said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. He goes away and I'm going, what's my first joke? I forgot my first joke. <laughs> now, 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 you know, now all of a sudden the, the, the lights, uh, you know, the curtain starts, curtain all opens. the lights come on the curtain yeah. and you say, we're, we're out of commercial. Doc Severinsen's playing, right? Yeah. And Johnny says, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on the tonight show. <laughs> that one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. Yeah. What a, beautiful thing for him oh, to say yeah. he never does it again only the first time <laughs> they open up that curtain and you walk out in the bright lights I can't see the audience <laughs> and I hit your market well you know yeah. you hit that mark. I can't see him and they're still applauding oh, I get the first joke out and it gets a laugh uh-huh. that second joke it gets a laugh third joke gets a laugh now I hear Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me uh-huh. I, now I'm on a roll I get applause I end up getting eight applause I finished with, I said, you, this is, you've been a marvelous audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, and show business is a tough life. So if you like me tonight, and, and it, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, <laughs> light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. <laughs> I go through the curtain. Craig comes running around. He said, go back, go back. I said, go back and talk to Johnny. No, don't go talk to Johnny. Just go back. Johnny was calling me out for another bow. So I went back out. He goes like this, you know, that little yeah. circle thing he used to. And I never stopped working from that night on. Oh, my I God. I never stopped working in show business from that night on. Sammy Davis Jr. saw me, took me on the road. Jeez. Uh, I, I never stopped working. Uh, That's insane. Uh, 
I mean, it, the the landscape, the power of that is, it's it, it, it's insane. Yeah. Like the entire country, not only the people well, that could hire you, but the entire country knew. Yeah. Well, in those days, twenty six and a half million people watch the Tonight Show. Yeah, twenty six. The next, they're day. happy now if a million people watch. Oh yeah, the Tonight Show. Twenty six and a half million people. That show could launch you again. Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. CBS signed me to a development deal the following day. A guy named Lee Curlin was watching the Tonight Show in New York. Yeah, a guy from CBS. He next day he called William Morris. And he talked to a girl named Nancy Dockery. Uh-huh. He, he knew her, Nancy Doherty, Nancy Doherty. He knew her. And he said, there was a comedian on The Tonight Show last night. I wonder if, and she said, do you know his name? No, he said, no. But I wonder if you were handling him. She said, let me check. I'll call you back. She calls this um, agent, Herb Carp, who I played softball with. Uh-huh. You know, I knew him. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, William Morris didn't want me. I, I couldn't, they wouldn't let me walk by William Morris, let alone sign me, you know. <laughs> so she, she says, there's a comedian on Tonight Show. He said, oh, it's a friend of mine, Tom Dreesen. She said, do we have him signed? Because she had said uh-huh. to Lee Curlin, you liked him a lot? He said, I liked him a lot. She said, like, deal? He said, yeah, I'd make a deal. Uh-huh. So she tells Herb, sign him right away. We got a deal waiting for him. Jeez. Herb, being a good guy, not like most William Morris agents. You know, right. But I always say William Morris agents have two hearts. One's as big as a pea, and the other one's just a little bitty one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyhow, Herb calls me. He said, Tom, I'm not going to lie to you. We got a deal waiting for you. You know, you don't have to sign with us. You can yeah. go to see. I said, it's Herb. I'd love for you to be my, will you be my agent? Yeah. You know, long story short, I get signed with William Morris, and they signed me. Now, I had my wife and kids out here living in Van Nuys. Yeah. The rent was $225 a month, <laughs> and I couldn't, sometimes couldn't get yeah. the rent money. That day, the next day, CBS signed, gave me a check for $10,000 and gave me $1,850 a month for a year as a development deal holding deal. <laughs> that meant my groceries, my rent. God. I, I could focus on this comedy career now. How relieved was your wife? Oh, I mean, you know, to tell her, don't worry about the rent for the rest of the year. By the way, don't worry about groceries for the rest of the year. Yeah. Don't worry. You know, in those days, God. $1,850 a month was a... Uh, groceries were like 40 bucks a week, God. 50 bucks a week, you know. Did you move immediately? No. We stayed in the apartment <laughs> for a little while, and then I ended up buying a home right. in Sherman Oaks and all that, you know. Oh, man. What, what, what a... What an amazing turnaround, you know. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It really is like the power, you know, you talk, a lot of people now talk about visualizing, you know, and all these different things, but there really is a power to this story of just that you saw it and you weren't going to stop. Well, because. by the way, I give motivation. I read many books on this. I give motivation talks now to high schools, colleges, to corporate America yeah. on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And I elaborate on those four points. For corporate America, for comedians, when I give a talk like that, I've done it in Chicago and Philadelphia and New York, I call it the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. Mm-hmm. But one of the books that totally changed my life around was a book by J- Joseph Murphy called The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. <clears throat> Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. Yeah. It was written thousands of years ago. It's biblical in nature. Yeah. But there was a science in it, how mm-hmm. the subconscious mind works. Yeah. It doesn't work. Subconscious mind works off of images. You know, when you say, what was his name? Talk about it. What was his name? Uh-huh. What was his name? Two days later, you see at Starbucks, give me a couple of, Tom Papa. Where'd that come from? Once you gave your subconscious mind an image mm-hmm. and an emotion, mm-hmm. it puts all those cells in the, in the action. What was his name? What was his name? So the, the subconscious mind, again, doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. Right. It only knows what you program into it. Right. And the way you're hypnotized, they put your conscious mind to sleep, uh-huh. to rest. 
And when your conscious mind is at rest, your subconscious mind is open to suggestion. And then they, they tell you, hop like a rabbit, and you hop like a rabbit. Right. So the book teaches, just before you go to sleep at night, and just when you first wake up in the morning, is when your conscious mind is most at rest. Mm-hmm. See the end result you want. See it, feel it, and believe it. See it, feel it, and believe it. I, when I was sleeping in the car and couldn't get on at the comedy store, mm-hmm. I used to envision Johnny Carson talking to me, saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy. Knowing if I was sitting next to Johnny, I'd already succeeded over there, because right. in those days, you had to do three or four shots before Johnny let you come and sit down. He wanted to know you had staying power, yeah, you know. right. I would see it, feel it, and believe it. Today, when I give motivation talks to comedians, I hold up this 8x10 glossy photo of Johnny Carson laughing at me. I say, mm-hmm. this is the picture that I imaged in my mind when I was sleeping in the abandoned car, when I couldn't get on at the comedy store. Right. You see, you're, you're, this is the vehicle you're given. You need to file a flight plan. The pilot who lands a 747 every day leaves L.A. and goes to Boston. Mm-hmm. He doesn't drive to the airport 120 miles an hour, go out to the tarmac, slam on the brakes, run aboard the aircraft, take off down the runway and say, now where I'm going? Where am I going? He files a flight plan. Mm-hmm. You have to file a flight plan. You know? yeah. and, and, and that's what I learned from those books. You know. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. It's kind of a deep question. But uh, you were saying before that you pray mm-hmm. all the time. And... Is there a difference between praying to a God uh, for forgiveness or for blessings or for whatever and this visualization for your subconscious? They work together. One is, what's the oldest cliche in, in, in any religion? The Lord helps those who help themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you remember the old joke where the guy, <laughs> the guy's, the lottery is now 45 million. And he says, oh, please, God, let me win the lottery. You know, and then it doesn't win. And next week, so oh, please, God, is now it's six. Please let me win. It's up to 100 million. Please, God, let me win the lottery. And from heaven, he hears, Larry, do me a favor, buy a ticket. You know, okay. So if you're, if you're not going to, so, so that they work hand in hand. You have to uh-huh. do the work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd see it, feel and believe it. But now I knew that this is what I wanted. But, but all the energies, you know, the strangest thing, sometimes it takes months, mm-hmm. sometimes years. Yeah. Sometimes 10, 15 years go by and you realize something. I'm going to tell you a true story. It's in my book. Mm-hmm. Cheap plug, still it, standing. Still standing. What's my, the subtitle of it? My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And, and I talk about it in my book. When I was a little boy, you know, selling newspapers on a corner. In Harvey, Illinois, 155th Street had a post office on one side of the street, the Elks Club on the other side of the street. I sold newspapers on the corner. <clears throat> one day, and when I was selling these newspapers, horns were blowing all over the place. This mm-hmm. is October 1948. I'm 10 years old. Uh-huh. Horns are blowing all over the place. You know, cars are, and I'm, I asked one of the elders, what's going on? They said, Tom, it's Lou Boudreau Day. I said, Lou Boudreau? He said, Tom, Lou Boudreau grew up here in Harvey. He went to the high school. They took the, the basketball team to the state championship three years in a row. He went to the uh, University of Illinois. He's kept on the basketball team. He's a baseball player. He went to the Cleveland Indians, mm-hmm. and he became a shortstop. And at age 24, he managed the Cleveland Indians and played shortstop, the youngest player manager in baseball. And they won the, the World Series. They beat Boston in the World Series. The, Lou Boudreau. I said, he's from Harvey, Tom. That's what, it was Lou Boudreau Day in Harvey. Right. So the horns were blowing him. And he was going to go down to the Elks Club and come out and get in the car, the convertible. And the crowds are going to follow him down to Thornton High School Field and sign autographs. 
I quick sold all my newspapers. My dad never owned a car. Thank God he had to run people over, you know. Right. I sold all my newspapers, and I get down to the Elks Club, yeah. right, where on the corner where I sold newspapers, and I waited. Lubadro came out with these other baseball players and some celebrities, mm-hmm. and, and he said hello to the crowd, and the people were cheering, and he gets in, in, the, in the convertible and takes off, and as a little boy, I'm going home. This is a true story. Mm-hmm. Like little boys do. I said, wow, somebody from Harvey, Illinois is famous. And I'm thinking, one day, and we have a parade for me, and I'm picturing the cars and the horns blowing and all that. And all. Yeah. August 22nd, 1992, I went back to Harvey, Illinois, and 155th Street, they named that Dreesen Street. And the guy who introduced me to the crowd was Lou Bedreau. No. That's the God's <laughs> honest truth. That's in my book. Now, you might yeah. go, ooh, but you know, when yeah. I thought about it, mm-hmm. as a little boy, mm-hmm. I emblazoned that in my mind. Yeah. There, there are hundreds of stories like that. Yeah. Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. Yeah. You know, just, no, it is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of that in my own life. But mm-hmm. I always kind of, I always wrestle with the concept of, or the, or even if there is a difference between your subconscious and what you're dreaming up and what you're visualizing and making happen. And then there's this tilt into talking to God. Mm -hmm. They're very similar. They're very close. You're kind of doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. but there's a slight difference. Joseph Murphy explains it in the book that your subconscious is connected to, Mm -hmm. you know, that's through that channel, through the subconscious mind. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, when I was a little boy, I went to Catholic school you know, again, my parents were drinking. My mom worked in a bar. My dad was a nice guy, but he wasn't a dad to me. He didn't take me yeah. fishing, hunting. I didn't feel bad because he didn't do it to the other kids either. But when I went, the nuns told me as a little boy, you have a father in heaven. I'm six years old. Yeah. A father in heaven. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and his son came here to tell you about it. And, and we, they taught us the prayer, our father who art in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, as a little boy, whenever I had a problem, I would pray to this father yeah. that I had in heaven because yeah. I didn't have one. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like I say, he was a good guy. But, but <laughs> so, so and, and I, I know it's to people who are not of, the, of faith, mm-hmm. it's always like, well, like, you know, you're some kind of a nutcase. Yeah. But I remember even saying that you have to have the faith the size of a, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, mm-hmm. things will happen. Mm-hmm. In my whole life, I've had hardships. I've been knocked down. I mean, I'm physically knocked down, you know. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I, when I, you know, the, the old saying is when I got knocked to my knees, I was in position to pray, you know. Right, you know, right. So, and it, it works for me. Yeah, yeah. And now there's a power to it. Yeah, there yeah. absolutely is a power to it. And, you know, who knows what we're tapping into. Mm. Uh, all right, let's talk about another God. You're going, f- you're doing, <laughs> you're doing stand up forever, uh, not forever, but you're you're working now. Your Tonight Show regular. You're cruising along, and uh, you run into Frank Sinatra, yeah. uh, who, by the way, I was saying to my daughter when she gave me that book from Christmas. I said, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't listen to some Sinatra. There's yeah. always Sinatra. It's just, I mean, it's such, it, it's woven into the culture in such a deep yeah. profound way uh how do you first run into him being glib at the right time i'm working I'm, 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 you know when i was a kid i was a big sinatra fan when i was shining yeah. shoes in all the bars frank was on the jukebox 
You know, right. I was a little boy. He was on all the jukebox. I'm shining shoes. Yeah. You know, that, that's thus the title of my book, you know, uh, from streets and saloons to the stage in Sinatra. When I, when I came out of service, I'm a bartender. You know, he said, come fly with me. Let's fly away. And my buddies would say, man, what would that be like? Can you imagine that flying with Frank Sinatra and <laughs> Dean Martin and Sammy Davis? You know, yeah. it was, I wasn't in show business at the time. And years later, yeah. I'm flying in this private jet. <laughs> Frank saying, good show tonight, Tommy. I'm going, wow. <laughs> this is so surreal, you know. Yeah. But what happened... I'm, I've toured with Sammy Davis for years. I was doing the Dean Martin roast and everything and doing a lot of television. And I'm touring with Smokey Robinson. Mm-hmm. And we're at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And Frank Sinatra's appearing next door at Harris. And the whole week that I'm working there, I could have went any night. Why I went this night, I don't know. Yeah. But I called the maitre d' over to the Harris because they knew me over there. I'd performed there. I said, I want to come over here. Tommy, we'll take care of you. I finished my show and I bolted out the side door. I didn't even change out of my stage clothes because mm-hmm. his opening act, it was his daughter Nancy at the time, was still. So I rushed and I'm running through the casino because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. Yeah. I saw Frank Sinatra perform twice in, in arenas. He created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people do with their whole act. Just when this guy walked out, whoa, yeah. man, the crowd would go crazy, you know. God. So I didn't want to miss that opening. I'm running into the showroom. The vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, mm-hmm. is out in front of the showroom with a heavy set guy with a cigar, and they're talking. I'm bolting by, and Holmes Hendrickson saw me. He said, Tommy, Tommy, come here. And I, I reluctantly yeah. went over because I didn't want to miss that opening. Yeah. <laughs> he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognize the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. Mm-hmm. Powerful guy in our business. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra and the lawyer rolled his eyes like he'd heard this a million times he had a pained expression but he winked at the vice president he looked at me he said hey kid if I gave you a week with Frank would you want more than uh, 50,000 I said Mr. Rudin put it this way if you gave me a week with Frank would you want more than (laughs) 50,000 he said oh he said I like this kid he laughed you know a week later they call me would you like to do one week with Frank Uh at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City what you know, year is this time? This is 1982. 82. Yeah. So he said, we'd like to do, and I thought, wow, I'll, I'll go there and I'll work with him one week and then I'll, I'll try to get a picture taken with him and hang it in every bar back in Chicago, yeah. and especially where I, right, exactly. kid, where I grew I up did at. It. You know, <laughs> the second night one I'm time. with him, he takes me out to dinner, him and his wife Barbara, after the show, and I can remember like it was yesterday. He's eating, we're sitting just like this. Yeah. He sets his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a, a few other dates with me if, if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. Yeah. I said, yeah. And it turned into 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year, uh, working arenas, 20,000 seat arenas, 40,000 in Hawaii. God. A friendship that I'll always treasure. I was a pallbearer at his funeral and I spoke Jeez. at his funeral and I miss him every day of my life. You know? God. How, uh, I don't even know where to start. When you're around people like that, you uh, when you when you know how lucky you are, you start to absorb things like a sponge, mm-hmm. right? You just you're not learning just from the performer. You're learning from being around, being backstage, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. watching the man. I mean, eighty twos, mm-hmm. right? So from the from the from the beginning, what was the what was the showbiz uh, thing that you, if there is a single thing. Uh, what was like the showbiz, him carrying, going, showing up at the venues, putting on the shows, getting off, getting ready for the next show? Everything with him is his show is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. You want to party? He'll hang out with you all night long. <clears throat> you mm-hmm. want to sit around, whatever you want to do. 
but not Showtime. Never in the history of Frank Sinatra, there's something you won't believe. This is arguably the greatest career yeah. show business has ever known. Mm-hmm. Forget about the fact that he was the greatest pop singer of all time. Yeah. Forget about that. This guy danced with Gene Kelly in movies. Yeah. He won the Academy Award, never took an acting lesson. Right. One night he was sitting, I was sitting at Frank's compound. I, I, I'd stay at his house six times a year. That's another story. I'll tell you, we used to ride around in the desert till the sun came up, you know, yeah. him and I just alone in a car. Yeah. But sitting around, all the women had gone to bed. It's Clint Eastwood. It's uh, Gregory Peck. It's uh, Kirk Douglas. It's uh, Robert Wagner. It's uh, Jack Lemmon. All these people I saw in the movies when I was a little boy. Yeah. <clears throat> but they're sitting there, and they're, and they're talking film, and they're talking directing and all. Mm-hmm. And I'm noticing that they're paying great tribute to Frank. Mm-hmm. You know. And finally, I, I was just curious, because you know in Hollywood we say, who'd you study with? You know, I studied acting yeah. in Chicago and out here. But people like that drop names, Stella yeah. Adler, or, you know. Yeah. Or, um, anyhow. I, I was curious. I said, Frank, did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. You know? so, so that's why when you gave Frank a song to him, it was a script. Right. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, that's he'd the- immerse himself in that lyric and, and become that lonely guy in a bar whose woman left him. And he's never going to find love again in you felt that yeah you oh, felt that big time you know, he, he, he but, but to him the, whatever you want to do but showtime I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm gonna digress the greatest entertainer of all time never ever ever late ever late mm-hmm. the one thing you had to learn if you're going to tour with frank sinatra that if he told you wheels up at nine o'clock and you showed up at 901 you're going to watch that plane going down the runway <laughs> I'm, I'm not making this up yeah. you know showtime you know you do, sh- always on time uh, you're right and always you know you know you see these young artists today they're 35 minutes late 40 yeah. minutes late the crowds for not Frank, no. and I had been in the military, so I also was about punctuality. Yeah, I yeah. I experienced that uh, that classic showbiz, the respect for the show thing mm-hmm. when I worked with uh, with Don Rickles and mm-hmm. his manager Tony, and mm-hmm. you know they just they came into just for laughs festival in Montreal, mm-hmm. which is you know a lot of younger comics doing whatever, and it's mm-hmm. kind of casual and that. When they showed up, and it wasn't a large number of people, but when they showed up, and it was it was clear the halls. This is our time to work. This is our place to work, mm-hmm. and the atmosphere changed yeah. instantly. Yeah. And I was like, this. They have a, and that's the thing I came away was just what you're saying. The respect for the show. Oh, Frank, you know, I've said to him one time, why do we, you know every act I worked with? When I worked with Sammy Davis, I said, it's his show. Yeah, <clears throat> I'd say, how do you want me to dress? He said, Tommy, I feel we should dress at least as good as those who came to see us. Mm. That's why even at the Laugh Factory, I, I, I don't overdress, but I'll dress yeah. at least as good as those who came to see us. Right. When I said to Frank, I said, why do we wear tuxedos? Mm. He went, you always wore a tuxedo. He said, Tommy, if we were going to do a show for the king and the queen, would a, a command performance, would we wear a tuxedo? I said, well, yeah. He <laughs> said, well, that garage mechanic in Detroit and his waitress wife who worked all year long to afford two tickets to our show, they're just as much royalty as the king and the queen, and they deserve just as much respect as the king and the queen. And I, I never uh, forgot that. I mean, but again, that's the way he approached yeah, it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, what was it about him that, <clears throat> in the arc of his career, when he went from, and I know it's been written about a lot, but just to get a vibe from you, you know, when he starts out as like the, this pop star, this young guy, and kind of, but he, then when he, when he returns after his kind of fade, it fades and comes back, he does have that saloon thing, that depth to it, mm-hmm. that, uh, was that, in your opinion, was that the just age and him kind of owning who he was? 
Hmm. Or had he gone through things and changed? He well, first of all, he retired. You know, he yeah. retired, and then he came back. <clears throat> you know, the main event, Howard Cosell. Yeah. You know, at, at the uh, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. You know, um, but he, I, I think he had time to reflect. He had had some, I think, nodules taken out of his throat or somebody mm-hmm. had time to reflect. But his approach, uh, again, the, 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 it's so hard to describe his approach to lyrics. You yeah. know, that that uh, you know, Steve Allen, who's a uh, not Steve Allen. Steve Lawrence, who's a great singer, wonderful guy going through problems right now. Steve Lawrence, one of the great singers of our time. One night we're having dinner, and he said to Frank, you know, you ruined it for all the rest of us. <laughs> this great singer, he said, because once they heard you sing it, they knew how it's supposed to be sung. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, he, <clears throat> he had, he had a, a sadness about him sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he had, you know, he'd gone through a terrible love affair with Ava Gardner mm-hmm. and if you, you go listen to a song called I'm a Fool to Want You he went back in and re-recorded that song after she left him mm-hmm. he, he was crushed mm-hmm. he was absolutely crushed I'm a fool to want you pity me I need you those are lyrics yeah. and you felt it yeah. you know he he, 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 he was um, he always gave, gave great respect to the writer he, he, every song he introduced yeah. he wrote it right you know? yeah yeah, uh, one that, time that'd I was be the, cool because you, the way you work is very. The words mean something are very important to you. You don't you don't waste a lot of. You, you're not mm. frivolous on stage. Mm. You have a very poetic kind of compactness to your I, jokes. I, I appreciate that. I have to tell you, I toured with Sammy. I sat in the wings every night and watched Sammy Davis Jr. I toured with him for three years. I toured with Frank Sinatra fourteen. Years. I sat watched them night and night. Yeah, when they hit that stage, mm-hmm. they took command. They took, oh, this is our stage. The first time I worked with Sammy Davis at Caesars Palace, I'd never worked in Las Vegas before. He takes me into Vegas. We're touring around the country. He takes me into Vegas, Caesars Palace. Mm. Opening night, we, they had rehearsal and everything. You know what we do. We do sound check. But I, I, everybody went to the dressing rooms. I mean, there's no one in the, in the theater. It's two hours before the show, I walk out on stage. I just want to familiarize myself yeah. with this big stage. You know? mm-hmm. And Sammy saw me in the dressing room, came out, and he said, you nervous a little bit, baby? I was going to be you nervous a little bit, baby? I said, wow, it's opening night. I never worked Vegas before. I'm opening for you. My name's on a marquee that he made sure they put my name on a marquee. He said, Tommy, see these boards, the boards on the stage? Uh-huh. I said, he said, you earned every single one of these boards. These boards, you earned the right to be here. This is our stage. If they could do what we do, they'd be up here. They can't do what we do. That's why they're out there. You know? And also... And I teach young comedians this all the time. When you walk out on a stage, <laughs> yeah. even it's foreign to you, if you were home, Tom, and your wife said, Tommy, we got 25 people in the living room. I don't have dinner ready yet. Tom, Tommy, go tell them some of those funny stories that you tell. <laughs> and you walk out in your living room and say, dinner's going to be ready in a little while, but I got to tell you, I'm at Galson's the other day. I run into this Tom, and you're doing funny stuff. I yeah. said, it's a convert. I tell the young comedians, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Right. Is it your act? You damn right it's your act. Right. It's your job to make it look like it's not an act. <laughs> yeah, that's that right. You tear down that that's fourth our magic wall. magic trick. Yeah, and so that's, I, when I, when Every time I walk out on stage in those days, and not even now, yeah. this is my house. Oh, look who's in my house! <laughs> right. See, what makes what intimidates young comedians and myself included when I was new. Yeah. We keep thinking those people that they own that place that when we're, we're invading their territory. Mm-hmm. Once I started getting the mind frame that oh no no, this yeah. is this is my house right. and you're in my house, and then it's a conversation, not a presentation. And I'll tell you what helped me yeah. with that. Years ago, I'm watching Robert Klein. I was new in the business, about five months in the business. I'm in Chicago, and he's at a place called The Quiet Night. 
And I'm a paraphrase, but basically I'm waiting for him. He comes, comes on stage. He said, I'm on my way over here. I'm coming between two parked cars. I got to tell you, you know the street. I'm, and, he's, he's, and this guy pulls out. And I'm saying, geez, he's ad-libbing. Yeah. The whole show, he ad-libbed that whole show. It was amazing. <laughs> I go to the second show. He gets on stage. He said, you know, I'm on my way over. I'm coming between these. I went, it was just that. Holy cow. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and what a lesson. It's yeah. a conversation. Yeah. I've literally been going through that recently where I realize a great place to put your new stuff is in the beginning, mm-hmm. right in the fat beginning, because they think you're just ad-libbing. Yeah. They think you're just getting to know them, and you're, you're sneaking in all of this material, yeah. and it doesn't have that thing that it will later of, oh, now, he's, now it's an act. You know, uh, well, you, if it, you know, whatever works, just for you. drip it in. Yeah. Woody Allen used to say, "You're going to break in new material, break in your new material on a Saturday night in, in the hottest crowd in the middle." Uh-huh. He said, "So you're giving it a good chance." Yeah. He said, "You're going to do it on a Monday night in front of twelve people." <laughs> he said, "Do it." And he said, "Do your strong stuff, and in the middle, put in that new material, and then close it." He said, "At least you're giving it a chance." Because yeah. you know, I've, I've written stuff that I said, "Well, that didn't work," but later on, it did work. Yeah, it just wasn't the right night for it, the right placement for yeah. it. You know? You still enjoy the writing? No. No? Somebody, no? the best question I was ever asked, uh, and, and I've done 10,000 of these interviews, but uh, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> I've done 20,000. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, what guy said to me one time, are you a comedian who's a writer or are you a writer who's a comedian? Mm-hmm. I said, boy, that's a good question because mm-hmm. I'm a comedian who's a writer because I love stand-up comedy. I don't love writing. Right. You know, I, it's, it's a necessity. I can write. Yeah. But you know what I used to do? I, have to, I used to put a gun to my head. Necessity is the mother of invention. I read that years ago. Uh-huh. Necessity is the mother of invention. I, I want to do another, I, I did 61 appearances on the Tonight Show, but it'd be like my 25th appearance on the Tonight Show. I got to come up with a new six minutes. Yeah. What I would do, I would call the Tonight Show. In those days, I had carte blanche, you know, and that's audition for anybody. By that time, they knew I could deliver. I'd call Craig Tennis and say, uh, I'm, I'm available March 18th or whatever it is. Uh-huh. And that's four weeks away. I said, okay, you're on, Tommy. And I didn't have the first joke written. Right. Now, Manic said in, yeah. no, I'm going to the comedy, so I'm going to the improv. I'm going to, and and every, everything you said, let me write that down. Yeah. And, 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 this, and I would come up with a, a six-minute wow. routine. Sometimes when I look back, when they show those reruns, I cringe. <laughs> really? I, oh, I cringe. I say, geez, that's a dumb joke. You know, but, but my tell, me about your, uh, tell me about your relationship with Letterman. When did you guys, you, was it the comedy story you mean? Yeah, he, he first came out in an old red pickup truck. I had already been doing stuff at the comedy store, and I came off stage one night, and he said, Mr. Dreesen, I really enjoyed your material. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's just kidding. And me, I'm so extroverted, Yeah, I took it to him. Right. I said, oh, where you, what is your name? He said, Dave. Uh, Dave, where are you from? Indianapolis. I said, really? Now I'm a sports nut. So I said, what Major League Baseball team did you for? I was hoping he was going to say the Cubs. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, you know, of course, he said, because uh, he Indianapolis, he, he, he likes, for some reason, Cincinnati. Uh-huh. So we talked about that. <laughs> now, every time I saw him, I took it to him. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Had I realized what a shy, reclusive guy he was, I probably mm. would have respected that mm-hmm. and, and left him alone. But by the time I realized that we were friends, we were playing racquetball together, playing right. you know, basketball together. And, and, and I liked him. He was yeah. totally not like anybody that I grew up with because uh-huh. I grew up on the streets. Right, know? right. Uh, he, he was an intelligent guy. Yeah. And, and also uh, not 
confident in himself. He always mm-hmm. thought it wasn't going to work or something like that. Right. And, and, uh, <laughs> he, but you know, I, I got to tell you a funny story. Um, I've told this a few times, but he said to me uh, back about six months ago, we were talking. He said, you know, every time you do an interview or I do an interview, they say, how did we meet? We always tell the same story. You came <laughs> off stage at the comedy store. I was there. I complimented. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's a boring story. <laughs> I said, maybe boring, but it's true. I don't care if it's boring. From now on, tell people that you came off stage, I stole some material from you in, in the parking lot, you, you were in the parking lot, and you beat the shit out of me. I said, now why would I tell? He said, because it's a better story. I said, He's right. Now, two weeks go by, he calls me. He said, do you know the governor of Illinois? I said, I met him, but I don't know him. He said, because oh, there was a, a plot of land in Illinois that uh, his wife had a good friend who had an adult son who had autism. Uh-huh. And these autistic adults were planting corn, beans, flour, tomatoes, you know, I mean, uh, not flowers, you know, corn, bean, tomatoes. And when it came into fruition, they would give it to the homeless. Mm-hmm. And somehow the state was taking that property away. He said, I want to call the governor, try to stop that law from being passed. I said, yeah, I know the Senate Majority Leader, a guy named John Cullerton, he's a friend of mine. I'll call him. He said, I called him, I said, John, blah, blah, blah. I told him, he said, oh, oh, tell Dave, don't worry about that. We're taking care of that. That's going to be that. I said, would you do me a favor because you know the statute you're telling me could i give dave your phone number uh-huh. and you explain it to him he said i said oh john john and john's a great guy i said john when you tell him you helped him tell him the reason you helped him <laughs> is because Dreesen beat the shit out of him in the parking lot at the comedy store <laughs> he said okay now i wait 10 minutes go by and my phone's ringing i knew it's dave i go hello he said didn't i tell you that's a better story i told you that's a better story <laughs> that's great <laughs> I, 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 dave letterman yeah. was never he never liked stand-up comedy yeah. He did it, yeah. but he didn't like it. And you'll, yeah. you'll note that all the years he was on TV, he never went and did, like Jay, went to Vegas every yeah. weekend and all that. Constantly, you yeah. Know, um, he, he, um, he never, he, but I'd love yeah. to watch him work. I love it, especially if he had a heckler. Yeah. <laughs> let, him, let him could cut you to ribbons, you know. <laughs> Just that attitude. Yeah. Man, oh man. When, uh, towards the end of uh, touring with, with Frank, tell me how it, how it wound down. Well, I told you I stayed at his home six times a year. Yeah. I just hang out with him sometimes. Sometimes we do a, a show down there. Then he'd come and get me like in, in my bungalow sometimes. The, he had an, on the outer perimeter of his compound were mm. bungalows. New York, New York, Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way, named after a song. <laughs> nice. And, and, you know, he'd come and get me and we'd take a ride. We'd ride around till dawn. Wow. And, and, and when those are amazing times... Because at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, he got a little more melancholy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, sometimes in the car, he wasn't Frank Sinatra, the singer, and I wasn't Tom Dreesen, the comedian. Yeah. I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois. He was a kid from Hoboken. Yeah. And we would just talk about the neighborhood and growing up and, and saloons. Yeah. Because my mom was a bartender. His mom and dad had a saloon. So we talked about that a lot. But he started to forget lyrics, you know. Yeah. You, you could see that, 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 that it was time. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, too, is... What people didn't realize is that, you know, I'd see him before the show sometimes, 20,000 people out there. Yeah. Now, this guy's 77, 78, you yeah. know. Uh, and, and you'd see him, first of all, when I, if in the big, in Vegas, when I finished the show or a casino, when I walked off stage, we crisscross. I'd exit stage right, he'd enter stage right. The band would keep playing and he'd get to center stage and he'd say, Tommy, come back and take another bow. Whatever he says, that's my man. You know, I'd take a half bow, you know, yeah. bow, wave him. In the arenas, They'd always take an intermission. I'd do like 35, 40 minutes. They'd take an intermission. Oh, wow. And then like a 15-minute intermission. Now, at that time, Frank, usually if he had guests or something, he would have them before the show. He never, you know. Yeah. Because he wanted to be left alone. Now, yeah. I'd come off stage, talk to him a few minutes, 
I was a crowd, oh, a great crowd, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Okay, and when you, you had to leave him alone, and when and he had five or ten minutes to go, everybody left him alone. Sometimes he'd pace, and mm-hmm. I'd look at him, I'd say, this poor old guy, Jesus, he should be home with his grandchildren. You know, mm-hmm. God, it's 20,000 people out there. He felt the responsibility of that. He'd, he'd look, he looked kind of forlorn. He'd get out there, the orchestra set up, and the light would hit him. Mm-hmm. Boom, come fly with me. You know, 20 years would fall off his face yeah and so something about he, yeah he had he had it now he had a teleprompter because he would forget lyrics every now and then yeah but he you know finally got the times where he'd have he'd have little lapses yeah uh, but I, I tell this story you may have seen it on in the internet because what happened was i told it on kevin nealon's show one time kevin puts on youtube the greatest sinatra story ever told well uh-huh. I, I cringe i said this ain't the greatest sinatra story but it got a million and a half hits right Twelve years go by, Andrew Schultz, the comedian, yeah. he sees that little video. He says, "Wow!" He puts it out and sends it to Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan says, "Effing incredible story!" It got another two million hits. <laughs> Ten years later, this is the story I'm going to tell you. He's like seventy-nine years old, and we're all wondering when's he going to lay it down? When's yeah. he going to lay it down? Because he's starting to forget lyrics and stuff. <clears throat> but he'd get through the night. We go to a place called the Mark Auditorium in the Quad Cities in uh, uh, Bentoncourt, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa. Yeah. Um, uh, Illinois, you know, two cities yeah. in Illinois, Moline, Illinois, you know. Anyhow, so I go out in a great crowd, you know, huge arena, great crowd. He comes out and he's killing them. He's just going through three songs, just knocking them dead. Yeah. He gets to the fourth song and he totally blanked on the lyrics. And the orchestra, orchestra's in the pit down mm-hmm. below. I look and he's going, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I went, whoa, whoa, this is it. Yeah. Now, the orchestra not, was still playing, not realizing with them, they start winding their instruments down one at a time mm-hmm. to an eerie silence in this huge arena. And now you hear them saying, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Now, I'm stage left. I'm thinking, I'm going to say, let's go home, Mr. S. It's been yeah. a great career, but it's time to go home. Just as I think he's going to leave, a guy way up on top of the arena stands up and he screams as loud as he can. <laughs> That's all right, Frank. It's all right, Frank. Because we love you, Frank. It's all right. We love you. And he started to applaud. Uh-huh. And the guy next to him started to applaud. Pretty soon the people around him applaud. Then 50, 100 people. Now 1,000. Pretty soon the whole arena is applauding oh this my guy. God. And he looked like he was going to walk off the stage. He had like a tear in his eye. Turned yeah. around, looked like he's, and I thought, we're going... He, he looked like he was going to set the microphone down. And he went back to center stage and he stood there and they would not stop cheering. They kept cheering and cheering till I thought it would never end. Wow. And finally, they stopped. He went into the next number, Come Rain or Come Shine, and never missed the lyrics. <laughs> I'm going to love you like nobody's love you. Come Rain or Come... Boom, bang, like he was a kid again. Jeez. Bang. When he got done, they stood and I thought it was never going to end again. God. Finally, they stopped. He's going to go on the next song and he goes, I love you too, pal. <laughs> <laughs> that guy doesn't know it. He brought him from the ashes that night. Yeah. He, it was over. Yeah. Frank sang about another year after that. You know, Jeez. But, amazing. Yeah. yeah. So where are you at now? I'm here talking to Tom Papa. It's pretty great. It's all downhill from here, pal. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm in the happiest time of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I love, I love comedy. 
I always say I love show business. I hate getting there. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the planes, the airport. Yeah, hey, know. you fly in Frank's private jet for fourteen oh years. Oh my God! Squad cars and limousines picking me up. I mean, if, if time to go on the road, two big guys would come up in a limo. They'd carry my luggage down. They'd carry me down. If I wanted to be, they'd drive you out to the airport. You get out of the, out of the limo. They carry the luggage. <laughs> you, you get on the jet. You wait. Frank puts his foot on the jet. The moment he put his foot on the jet, he'd say to the pilot, Johnny Spots was his name. He'd say, "Let's go, Spots. We take off down the runway. All that pre <laughs> that pre flight stuff better be done. Yeah. We take off down the runway. We land. Squad cars and limousines rush us to the airport. Yeah. Rush us to the gig. We do the gig. Squad cars and limousines rush us back to the jet. We're flying over the venue. People aren't even in their cars yet. We're on our way to the next city. Good. Now. Uh, yeah, you guys got any? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, looking I, I, for a flight I, on Southwest. Oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and it's the traveling. But I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I love making people laugh. Yeah, I've got a 90 minute show called "The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh." It's stand up comedy, but it's storytelling. Yeah, um, the the theater they're playing Sinatra music, nice. and, and while well, people are filing in, and then. The, the, when the people are seated in the showtime, there's a screen on the stage, and uh, the lights go down, and Dennis Farina, God rest his soul, my friend, yeah. narrates three minutes of my life. You know, all my wow, growing up, and the, the comedy team, uh, you know, the military, then yeah. comedy team, and then the t Tonight Shows, and then the Sammy Davis, the Dean Martin, and to Frank, you know. Yeah. I come out, and I do stand-up comedy. Right. And I do 25, 30 minutes, I get them rolling. And over on the stage right is a bar uh -huh. with a bottle of Jack Daniels, which was Frank's drink of choice, sitting on the bar. I say go over to the bar, and I tell a funny story at the bar. And the audience is laughing. All the lights go out in the theater. And on the screen, Frank is singing to the, I'm a bartender, he's singing, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place <laughs> except you and me. You know, like he's singing to me. Yeah, That's nice. one for my baby. When he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road. He goes off the screen and the spotlight hits me and now I'm in a bar and I've come home. Uh -huh. And I tell the audience the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois, and he was on the jukebox. Then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra and Harvey, Illinois to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Uh, so amazing. I take them on the journey. Yeah, that's A lot great. of laughs. Yeah, yeah. A lot of laughs, a lot of laughs, and then, and then some real serious yeah, stuff. Yeah, I take him great. to the funeral, I have him in tears. Yeah. And then I, I turn it around, and, and I close with a very funny monologue, and then I get the Jack Daniels at the end of the monologue, and I, when I close, I say, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song that he ever sang on stage is that the best is yet to come. Good night, everybody. And nice. they're, they're singing... Frank is singing, the best is yet to come as people are leaving the theater. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. This is amazing. But see, it's nice going to the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> I was always, I love watching you work. I, you know, we work together a lot at the yeah. factory. And yeah, Chris, and, 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 and Clint's I, stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. And I always like standing in, 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 in the back and watching you work because you, you're a good stand-up, you know. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, that yeah, that means guy. a lot coming from you. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we got to spend this time. This was... Uh, uh, yeah, really perfect. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've, I've watched your podcast, you know. Here's your bread. Oh, Take it home. I'm taking it home. Eat it. Huh? It's, not, it's not bread that will make you fat. I know you like to keep your girlish figure. Yeah. Just... <laughs> Toast it, put some butter on it. It's not bread that'll make you. you it know, won't make you. Then bad. if I was you, I'd start selling this, folks. <laughs> Tom Papa's bread. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Um, we'll see you next time. We got it, Aaron. <laughs>